how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Tim Long got his start writing for magazines where he eventually landed a job writing for Bill Maher on Politically Incorrect and then Late Night with David Letterman, where he became the head writer. Today he's best known for writing for The Simpsons, and he's just created a movie about his life as a teenager. In the exchange, the fictionalized Tim Long is played by Ed Oxenbold, and the movie is directed by Dan Mazur from The Ali G Show. The plot is described as hoping to find friendship with a French exchange student, an awkward teenager discovers that the student is not as sophisticated and cultured as he assumes. In this interview, Tim talks about the mistake of firing people too early, how to write 40 or 50 passable jokes in an hour, what it means to create a hot sheet for monologue jokes, how to eradicate self-consciousness as a writer, and the evolution of his latest movie, The Exchange. My journey has been uh, an unusual one. I guess everyone's journey is a little bit unusual. Um, nobody takes the exact same path as anyone else. But, um, you know, basically, if I can start at the beginning, I grew up in a little town in Canada called Exeter. Um, watched just a staggering amount of television because there was nothing else to do. Um, used to go see movies with my mom every Saturday afternoon. We'd drive like an hour and a half into the nearest city. Um, and so I was definitely kind of immersed in the world of entertainment, even though I was about as far from the world of entertainment as you could possibly be. Um, then I went to the University of Toronto. Uh, I wrote a humor column for the Varsity, which was a, the paper there at the time. And then I moved down to New York, wrote for some magazines. Then um, it was around 1993, 1994. It was a time when there was just a lot of comedy shows a lot of late night comedy shows happening and going on the air not just bill maher's show politically incorrect but uh the original conan show david letterman show was starting on cbs so even though i didn't have any tv writing experience i certainly hadn't gone to school for it um i like to say that the merry-go-round slowed down just enough for me to get on it 
Um, so I had a friend who had worked on politically incorrect. And so he suggested I put together a packet. I did. Same thing on the Letterman show. Um, the interesting thing about the Letterman show was that they were hiring like crazy, but they were also firing like crazy. So it wasn't the hardest thing in the world to get hired. It was difficult to get hired there. Um, but the really hard thing was hanging on. So I got the job there and I just decided there's no way I'm going to get fired. So I just worked as hard as I ever have in my life for a sense and managed to stay on. Um, and that's how I got to that point in my career. What do you think that churn was like? Like, do you think it was like when like Seinfeld famously every year, they would kind of fire the whole staff because they wanted to like milk everyone's best ideas. Is that <laughs> what it was? You know, I, that's funny. I haven't actually heard that about Seinfeld. I, I'm sure there were a lot of people who came and went. I, I know a few people who were sort of in the core group there. So uh, I think they had a little more job security. You know, I just feel like that was such a competitive environment. And especially after, you know, the first couple of years of Letterman were first couple of years at CBS were sort of a golden age. And he brought a lot of people over from NBC. Um, but then after that, a lot of those people left and got big fat development deals in Hollywood. And then he just didn't, I don't, I don't think they really knew what to do. So they just started trying to hire people willy nilly. And um, it was kind of difficult because I have to say there were a lot of people who were great writers, but it almost any writing job, it takes a little while to settle in. Like I know that on the Simpsons, I don't think I really knew what I was doing for a couple of years. Honestly, I was certainly contributing jokes um, and contributing, you know, making a contribution of whoever I could. But in terms of like pitching stories and knowing how stories work on the show and being confidently able to just say, okay, this story starts like this and then it goes here and then it goes here and then it goes here. I don't think it took me a long time to figure that out. So yeah, I think, I think sometimes it's a mistake to fire people too quickly. And I think that happens too often in TV writing rooms. Well, so I actually interviewed Mike Reese when his, when his book came out about a year ago and so entertaining and we talked about, I think he wrote for like Carson briefly and mm -hmm. they would submit 300 ideas and he might take like five or six. Was it uh -huh. a similar process with the Simpsons and Letterman for you? Well, Letterman, you know, I think one of the really good things that happened when I was at Bill Maher and later at Letterman is I just realized that it's a lot like any other game. It's like volume, volume, volume. So I got very good at writing like 40 or 50 jokes in an hour. Hmm. I'm not saying they were good jokes. I think in many cases they weren't, but I think they were all passable. Like, I don't think I wrote that many jokes where people would hear it on the air and say like, that doesn't make any sense or that doesn't sound like a joke. Like everything I wrote at least sounded like a joke. Hmm. So um, that is really an invaluable skill. Like the, the two words that you could never hear in television are writer's block. It just, <laughs> there's no time, you know? Um, and I just learned that the, the principle that has served me the best as a writer is dare to be terrible. Because otherwise, if you're being too precious and trying to make things perfect, you won't do anything. I, my advice is always to write something bad and then improve it. And I learned that principle working in late night. Did you always have uh, some degree of that? Like, it seems like it would be hard to teach someone to have 50 different creative ideas on different subjects, if it's the news or whatever they're watching that day, where a lot of people will have one idea and they execute it 50 different ways. How do you kind of do the first part of that? Oh, well, I mean, in terms of monologue, I'm talking about like monologue jokes. Yeah. 
like yeah. Bill Maher monologue jokes. I remember there was an assistant who would prepare this thing called the hot sheet. He or she would go through the newspaper in the morning and just list off all the topics. So to save you the time of flipping through the paper. Right. And I, I learned a lot of news that way. Um, but, you know, to call them creative ideas is to kind of give them too much credit. I had, you know, like you, if you write enough monologue jokes, you understand that there are like 10 templates for jokes and you learn how to combine them and uh, execute them endlessly. So I'd say that like in a given hour or a given day, if I wrote 50 jokes, um, you know, I would say 40 of them would be what I would call workmanlike, like you would know it, nobody would be blown away by them, but you just, because they adhere to the formula, like even now, if I watch any of the late night shows, and this isn't to put anything down, if I hear the punchline, I can pause it, guess, I, I was rather, if I hear the setup, right. I can pause it and guess the punchline, and I'm right 95% of the time. I mean, a word or two might be different, but, you know, there's a, it's just, it's a lot, it's like swinging a golf club or something. There's a, there's a way to do it, and you learn how to do it. But as I said, if 40 of them were working, like 10 of them would be, maybe five of them would be just awful and weird, and five of them would be like something I'd be proud of that'd be genuinely surprising. So again, it's just so much of writing is just getting rid of that level of self-consciousness and just knowing you're there to do a job. It sounds like there's a lot of a formula to that approach. Is it harder for you to create like more evergreen jokes, like stuff that's not based on whatever's going on today? Because The Simpsons definitely has a variety of that of now yeah, and forever. Absolutely. Like I think that even at Letterman, I would try to do stuff that was unusual. You know, I was never like inspired by the idea of writing monologue jokes. I was inspired by writing like short videos or fun little weird segments for Dave to do that took surprising twists and that weren't based on the news. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I just think it's a, it's a question of like, sometimes you're inspired and sometimes you're not. Um, but I, th I think that if you've got, you have to be able to write a variety of different things as a writer, um, stuff that's inspired and personal and stuff that's workmanlike and maybe more comical. I'm not sure if that answered your question. Yeah, that's good. How has, so you've got uh, on IMDb, it says you've been on the Simpsons since 1999 until today. I've heard Conan O'Brien say that back in the day, there's three channels. It's not as hard to compete with the other three channels, but now you're kind of, the jokes are competing with everyone's attention, anybody on social media, anybody that captures a live, you know, video of anything like that is it has the simpsons changed because of all the comedy that's everywhere well i mean i think that you can sort of I, I think it's that's a complicated question because i think the simpsons dna is everywhere like certainly in any of the animated shows many of which are great um you know they wouldn't exist without the simpsons right. uh, i'm sure you know seth MacFarlane readily admits that Family Guy and his family of shows would not exist without The Simpsons. Same with South Park, same with Bob's Burgers. So yeah, you don't have the whole terrain to yourself. And so we try to, obviously we try to be funny. And I think we have some of the funniest writers in Hollywood on the show still, but you know, there are stories that we tell that no one else would tell. And that's what we try to do. Um, like I wrote an episode in the spring uh, where Lisa kind of became obsessed with this morose English singer from the 80s who may or may not have been based on Morrissey. And I remember thinking as we were writing it, 
if we didn't write this, no one would write this. Like, it's too weird. And, and the, I feel like those are the stories we aim for. Are you guys able to, I asked Mike about this and he kind of said that he may, he mainly ignores any fan criticism. He said, Al Jean will kind of go through <laughs> it from time to time and see if there's any value value there. How do you think about fan criticism for something like the Simpsons? It's so big. I think it's tricky because on the one hand, yeah, a show that has such a fat, passionate fan base as the Simpsons and such a kind of legendary status in the world you're going to get critics and, and people are going to say mean things. Um, I mean, I think that it's pretty, you can't ignore it because you're human and also because it can occasionally be useful. Um, but at the same time, you kind of have to evaluate. I know that Al looks at the, at the websites and things, and I think that it's worth looking at, but only in so much as you want to look at the things that people say in good faith. There are people who just want to be mean or who just want to fall back on this old trope of the show was great for 10 years. And then it's been uniformly awful for 20 years. Like they want to say that. And that's just not true. We all love those first 10 years. Um, but there are shows in the last few years, which I think stand up to anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I'm really proud of. Um, so if, if, if someone, if we're working from the same position, which is that this is still a really good show, I will listen to your criticism. If you consider it worthless and that it should be canceled by an act of Congress, then I'm not going to listen to you. Right. So you just, it's just judging people's intent. Do you see any, any value in kind of, I've heard Judd Apatow say the note behind the note, meaning like if a producer doesn't like this joke, they probably don't have an answer, but maybe you should re-examine that. Do you see that in the same way as, as the fan criticisms? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, um, our show is a little insular because we we don't get notes from the network or from the studio, which is extremely unique. So we're only getting notes from like James L. Brooks or Al Jean or Matt Groening. And, and those guys, what's great about them is that they, they will give you the criticism, but they will often give you a very useful solution. You don't have to use it, but they, they're not just like criticizing. They're like, well, right. what if you did this? And their, their aim is to make the show better. Whereas I've worked on a lot of projects where like outside people are giving notes and yeah, it's true. You do. I think that's a good way to put it. There's a note behind the note. Sometimes what people are really saying is my voice sounds like this. Like they just feel like, especially one of the worst things in Hollywood is to be on these conference calls with like 20 executives and you're just listening and and everyone's talking and everyone's talking and you can see that people are just trying to say things for the sake of saying them. Um, So yeah, sometimes notes can be safely ignored. And, but sometimes, you know, if, my thing is always that like, if there's a line or a story term or whatever that people don't like, if a bunch of people don't like them, then you probably have a problem. They may not have a solution or they may not understand why they don't like it. But if six different people are saying like, Ugh, this thing on page 30, you better listen or at least think about it. Hmm. So you mentioned kind of, you know, watching the monologues, which are obviously geared towards a mass audience. It is pretty predictable. What does excite you about comedy today? What are you looking at? Are you looking at new stand-up, new movies? What are you looking at today? You know, there's a million things. Like, I love that when things pop up unusually. Like, I was super excited 
yesterday when the new Tim Robinson sketch show debuted its second season on Netflix. I think you should leave. Because I thought that first season was just unbelievable. And, and you could see what his influences were. Like he liked the weirder end of sketch. He, he feels like he's the kind of guy who just produces those sketches. On SNL, they would call them the 1250 sketches, like the weird sketches that are at the end of the show. I feel like that series is nothing but 1250 sketches. Right. With a dash of the Tim and Eric great, great job show mm-hmm. from Adult Swim a few years ago. So I find that really exciting. It's exciting when people online just produce something um, that's odd and imperfect, but funny. So, you know, I don't think the world is running out of ideas. You just have to maybe be a little more creative about where you search for them. Hmm. Tell me about the exchange. How did this kind of come to be and how did you get involved with this project? Well, it was sort of based on a real thing that happened to me. Um, I was a, a kind of a nerdy kid in a small town in Canada. And I did import a French exchange student who I thought would be just like me. And I was uh, in for a rude awakening when the kid was very different from me. Uh, So, you know, this was based on a real thing. And I actually, it started when I, I wrote this up as a spoken word essay, like a six minute like story basically that I told at a charity event. It was like one of those moth style storytelling events. And it got a good reaction. And one of my agents, this wonderful woman named Anne Blanchard was in the audience and she said, wow, that could be something that could be a TV show. That could be a movie or something. So she hooked me up with the producer, this guy named Dan Hine, whom I'd worked with before. And he and I um, talked about it for a while and then we cooked it into a pitch. And then from there, the pitch became, uh, we sold it to this company called LAMF. And then uh, I wrote a million outlines and a million drafts. And the next thing you know, we're in Ottawa and we're shooting the movie. What happened about like today? Was it coincidentally that it got made recently? Cause it seems like there's less comedy movies being made. They're more like action comedies or TV shows. Like how did you decide to like, let's make this an actual movie. We just wanted to tell a small personal story. And I, I, you know, I'm really hoping that we've caught a moment when people want that again. Um, there have certainly been a lot of blockbusters and a lot of those blockbusters have been great, but this is just a small, slightly silly, but emotional movie about two characters who take a journey together in an actual situation that looks sort of plausible. So, you know, that's all, that's the kind of movie I generally really like. Like I'm a huge fan of like the indie comedies of the eighties. Um, I just watched something wild. Uh, which is an amazing movie from like 1986 uh, made by Jonathan Demme. Uh, That's the kind of movie I watch. So I I sort of feel like you should write the kind of movies you want to see. And this is the kind of movie I want to see. What do you think made this draft like clicked and and get the funding and everything? Cause you're not, you don't have like a a major league cause you're working with like younger people. So they're not already super famous. There's not all this other stuff that's the IP and everything that we're known for today for making movies. How did all that how did it come together? Like, what about the script made it work to get funding? I think I, you know, there's there's a certain magic in things that are real. I think, um, you know, this is a story. Again, I changed the the story so much, and I changed the character so much. I, I've often said that the only character who's really based in reality is me, um, because I really was that nerdy and that insufferable. Um, everyone else is sort of a comedy confection, um, but I don't know. There's just something about 
watching a movie like this, as silly as it is, I think people realize, oh, this sounds like it. it this is, I like anything where you watch it and be like, this is so weird. It must've actually happened. Hmm. You know, it's such like, why would you make this up? It's too odd. Um, and I think people find that sort of resonant, especially in a world where, you know, a lot of movies are just full of people shooting lasers and blowing shit up. Right. Did you have any, uh, like mental barriers in changing things about the plot or was it so long ago you were far enough away from it where some people have problems changing personal stories? Oh, that's an interesting question. No, I never did. I never did. I, I mean, one of the nice things about the Simpsons is I've just had all that preciousness, preciousness beaten out of me. Like I, I've told some of my favorite Simpsons stories that I've written have been about things that happened to me. Like one of my first episodes was about an incident where uh, it was based on an incident when I was a kid where we got trapped in the school during a blizzard um, and we had to stay overnight. And I pitched that as a story, but it ended up with like the episode that I wrote ended up with like Bart and Lisa taking Skinner hostage and it becoming like a Vietnam war type POW story. And obviously that didn't happen to me. So I had, you know, by the time I wrote the exchange, I had any preciousness about changing my own story beaten out of me. So mm -hmm. it wasn't a problem. Is there anything you do with those, those stories that don't work at that moment? Like, do you have notebooks, things you come back to of ideas? You know, I hear about people having notebooks or like I hear about, you know, writers who having a drawer full of ideas that they can dip into. I don't really do that. I think partly because I'm lazy and partly because I have a really good memory. Um, I sort of feel like the ideas that will come back, if, if an idea is good enough, it will come back to you. Like I read this story recently about how Patty Chayefsky, he would write a draft and then put it away. And without looking at the previous draft, he would write it again. And his principle was that the stuff that was good enough to put back, put into the next draft, he would remember, mm. which is a little bit crazy. I mean, obviously that doesn't apply for today where you have a final draft thing you could just look at, but I just assume that the ideas that I have, they're kind of half formed, but aren't ready to write. If they're good enough, I'll remember them. And sometimes they'll just occur to me and I'll think, Oh, I should go back to that. Or the problem with that story idea, somehow it doesn't seem like a problem anymore, or I know how to fix it. So, you know, I haven't run out of ideas. I may have run out of good ideas, but those are, those are two different things. What is your, like at any given time, what does your schedule look like? Are you, are you working on multiple episodes at a time, writing a script at the same time? Like, are you, are you bouncing between projects? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's something you have to do, especially on a show like the Simpsons, because we always have like six or seven shows at various stages of production. Um, I would say that, yeah, at any given time, we, you know, I'm writing a script or, you know, I'm a one, I will, we're calling them co-runners. So I have like four or five episodes sort of under my purview. So I'm seeing other people's scripts. I'm giving notes, other shows that are further along in the process. I'm giving animation notes or, or we're putting final tweaks on it. So, and then quite apart from the Simpsons, I'm often working on my own things at lunch or at night. So I feel like, I mean, one of the things that I like about my current job is it takes advantage of something about me, which is that I have no attention span. Like I, my, this is like the longest I've ever talked to one person <laughs> in weeks because this is really interesting and I love talking about myself. But for the most part, I tend to like 
write for 10 minutes on this and then take a break and take 15 minutes on this. And it just, I have the attention span of a hummingbird, but I've somehow managed to make it work for me. Was that ever a problem? Did you ever, did that ever stress you out before? I imagine now you just like, I've heard like um, some of the Monty Python guys just say, you, we you look like we're goofing off at the end of the week. There's, there's enough material somehow. Do you kind of see it the same way as like getting the work done week to week? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like, I think that when you're a writer, work sometimes doesn't look like work. Like I know that, you know, we're on zoom now at the Simpsons, but when we were together, you know, we would often goof off or we'd, we'd invent these weird games involving like throwing a ball against a wall and trying to hit somebody else's head. <laughs> and we would do that in between pitching ideas. Um, but somehow that's, you know, that's replenishing the soil. <laughs> or sometimes that's a time when people will be like, well, why don't we turn this game into an episode? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's like, it's not a question. I've never been somebody who says, I want to get eight hours of work done today because I think that's folly. I think that, I've always been someone who's been like, let's get two good ideas today. And if those both come to us at 1030, then we can start drinking. (laughs) Not really, obviously. (laughs) I don't want Disney to think I'm drinking on the job. (laughs) Are there some things that, so a lot of shows, if you're maybe in the first couple of seasons, they might have a meeting at the beginning of that season to talk about what's happened. Do you guys do any of that with like the most recent of the Simpsons or is it all like, completely new every year fresh and that kind of thing oh you mean in terms of like complete like adding to the arc that you've already established on the show do you need to know some of that or do you i mean i imagine you can't talk about 30 years i mean you do have to i i think that writing on the show it's funny i was about to say that you do need a basic knowledge of what's happened on the show and certainly you do even the newer writers have to know who the characters are you have to know who lisa is you have to know who bart is but now we don't really recap things because obviously we're one of those weird shows where everything starts from scratch. Like you, it's sort of their standalones. We're not, it's not like something happened last week and let's see how it plays out this week. We almost never do that. It's, right. it's sort of a, it's a world that starts from zero every week. Um, and, and in a way, I think it's better for some of the new writers if they don't have the entire canon of the show in their heads, because that can be very paralyzing. Right. Um, because you're thinking, Oh my God. You know, there's that famous South Park episode where they say the Simpsons did it. The Simpsons did it. Yeah. We have the same thing. You know, we're like, oh, my God, that's a great Jeff Martin episode from season four um, or whatever. But um, no, we're mostly just looking forward gotcha. to see, how, you know, to trying to figure out new and effective ways to piss off the fans. <laughs> just do uh, one or two more. So I usually ask people, like, if you were starting today or giving advice to someone who doesn't really have connections, they're new to the business how might you advise them to try and break in? Well, I think my, my sort of slightly insincere advice is be great. I mean, I think that the one mistake I see a lot of young screenwriters make is that they think about the marketing aspect of it, which is important. They're like, what did your cover letter look like to an agent? What sort of paper stock should I print my screenplays on? And those sort of superficialities, like, you can get caught up in them because they're sort of controllable, but like my advice would be, well, twofold, just write like crazy, find people who you trust to read your writing. I said twofold, but this is going to be multifold. Um, realize that you're terrible. Like realize that you're not good at, because even now I often say to myself, like I have a lot to learn or there's things I need to do. Like there's people who consider themselves 
too many people consider themselves undiscovered geniuses. What you are probably is a person with certain very crude skills who needs to get a lot better. And so just have that humble attitude of like, I have a long way to go just in terms of my skill set. Um, and the other advice, more practical advice would be like, use social media. Like there are still create content, like, you know, write on Twitter every day, create little videos there. It's, you can do it with no money, basically just like be in the world and send your things out and realize, and that'll help you develop your craft. You'll learn so many things on the fly. And it'll also help you develop a thick skin because inevitably people are going to tell you that you suck. So that, that's my advice. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.